0: Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We began last week looking at this next section, verses 11 through 26. We got as far as verse 14. So we'll continue our study this morning by picking it up, of course, in verse 15. The theme throughout this section, I mean, in one sense, you could say throughout all of the Gospels, but particularly in a in a more intense or heightened way through this section Is the glory of God shining in the face of Christ against the backdrop of the darkness and the sinfulness of man. The wickedness of man. Now to introduce this, I want to make or remind us of really what's going on here. And it's this. One thing for us to notice is that everything that God created for his glory, everything that God created for his glory and the good of man is here being Hijacked, as it were, is being used against him to destroy him. God established government for the good of man. Government functioning properly punishes the wicked and rewards those who do right, those who obey the law, as it were. Here, government is being used and manipulated, however, to perpetuate the worst injustice ever known In the history of the world. The nation of Israel was formed as a people called out among all of the nations of the earth. To be those whom God would reveal his truth. Through whom God would reveal his salvation and his redemption. And yet here that nation is turning on God. In fact to destroy him. To silence him. This is an incredible act of rebellion of all of creation against our maker. And we can forget the depth and the reality of human sin in a somewhat sterilized culture, particularly ours, or even as we might look around at nice people and even nice religious people yet who have not truly submitted their lives in repentant faith and to Christ. And we could forget somehow... How deep our sin really goes. How profound the depravity and the darkness that is the true condition of the heart of man apart from the grace of God. How deep that darkness really goes. But the end of all sin is nothing less than to silence God. Even to destroy him. John Owen said that many years ago. One of my favorite statements of his is that sin always aims at the utmost. It always aims, if unchecked, towards its final end. The final satisfaction of its lust. So Psalm 2 says this. While the nations were in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. And this is the attitude of men left to himself, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us be totally free from the authority of God. Let us be totally free from any accountability to God, and we will live independently from him. And that's what sin desires. And that's essentially what's going on and being displayed here. And yet the two great truths that are laid before us are this, that in light of this darkness, in light of the rebellion of man, in light of the sin that is seeking and to destroy God, the grace of God stands even brighter still. Even brighter still. God has determined to save. God had determined before the foundation of the world to save a people whom he would purchase with his son. And so while in one sense we our right and need to recognize the depth of human sin, we also would not want to fail to recognize that this is the ultimate demonstration of the verse we know so well, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be crucified, to be rejected, and to suffer even at his own hand. So God's love stands on display here. Christ stands on display in his glory as mediator. Hebrews 2 tells us that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This was all necessary. It all had to happen, in other words. In Hebrews 4.15, we were told, "...for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." So His glory shines in the fact that this was necessary, and it's Christ willingly laying down His life under the sovereign hand of the Father to be for His people a satisfaction for their sin." Every bit of the suffering, every bit of the detail of the suffering that he undergoes is so that he might sympathize for us in our weakness and he might come to the aid of his people who suffer for the testimony of his name with compassion, strengthening them to stand strong in the face of adversity. He stands as an example then for his people. We mentioned it last week, but Paul told Timothy when Timothy was weak, when he was Fearful of the consequences of being faithful to the gospel. Paul told him this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So the scene here is one that Timothy and we are to emulate of saying, even in the face of such adversity, Christ stood strong and without sin. And it is that same savior Who enables his people to do the same. And he's an example of obedience. Hebrews 5 tells us this. Although he was a son. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And it is this loving sacrifice of Christ here. That is if we know him. And in fact our eyes have been opened to behold the glory of God. Makes us say with Paul. In Galatians 2.20. The life we live by faith. We live. Or the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself up for us. So this is the glory of Christ shining here. The glory of God in that he has provided a savior who would undergo all of these things for us and for his people. And he's the greatest example of divine love and meekness. It is an astounding reality. It's absolutely, it's barely beyond our comprehension at many levels. To understand what's really going on in this scene. We mentioned it last week, but this this is before these people, before Rome, before the Jews. Merely a man. And yet this is one that we know as the eternal Son of God. The one who created all things. The one who created all things in the physical realm. The one who created all things in the spiritual realm. He is one of absolute authority and power and eternal glory. And here he is in flesh, the son in flesh, standing before a puny, inept, weak, immoral, unjust Roman ruler. A fickle crowd, a darkened nation who has determined to reject him. And yet he is God. And I would suggest, as you well know, to remind us here, never, never has the mind of man in the history of the world since the fall of man in the garden to now and to the end ever been able to conceive of their own imagination a God like the God who stands before us on the pages of Scripture. A God eternal in glory, a God three in one. A God absolutely and infinitely holy here subjecting himself to his own creation to bear their injustice that he might bear his own justice to forgive them. That is, that is supernatural. This is a testimony to the supernatural nature of scripture. To the reality of Christ. Never would man invent a God like the God who is. And like the God who stands before us. Here in the pages of scripture. Now before we get back into where we left off last week. I want to again remind us of what's going on here in Matthew's presentation. There were in fact two trials for Jesus. There was a religious trial and there was we could call a secular trial or a worldly trial or a civil trial. The religious trial was recorded for us earlier back in chapter 26 beginning in verse 57. This was essentially the Jews way of vindicating their desire to put him to death. And so breaking all of their own rules, they drag Christ before their own court and they eventually charge him with blasphemy. Which, in their minds, was true because he did, in fact, make himself out to be God and to be the Messiah. In their minds, you can understand why they would be galled or or gassed at that. Because they did not see the reality of it. Then there is a second trial. After, in their own minds, vindicating their thirst, really, for his blood, they take him before Pilate. And Pilate then is going to be essentially an instrument in their hands. That's what they want to use him as. They're essentially just manipulating the government system, the Roman government system, to carry out what is their truest desire, which is to put him to death and to put him to death in a way that in some way and in some measure absolves themselves from the full guilt of what they're doing. So not only are they trying to use the sword of Rome, they're trying to take cover behind Rome To somehow shift some of the blame to them and remove it from themselves. So this is complete hypocrisy, complete manipulation, complete deception. Now John 18 and Luke 23 reveal to us the tense encounter between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. Before we get to the question in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 27. And Luke reveals for us particularly the charges that were brought against him. Let me read it to you. It's Luke 23, 2 and 5. They tell Pilate, they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They later said he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now, Pilate really could have cared less about all of these other charges What Pilate was concerned about, however, as a Roman official charged with maintaining peace and order in Jerusalem, was the charge of sedition. In other words, the charge that Christ was actually a threat to Roman authority, that he was a threat to peace in that region, and therefore a threat to Rome's rule and to Pilate's rule. And so that is the charge then that... Pilate picks up on and that Matthew begins with in verse 11 in Pilate's question. Are you the king of the Jews? It's the charge he's going to place over his head on the placard when he's crucified. In verse 37, it says, and above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, the King of the Jews. So that's really what it was about in the mind of Pilate, in the mind of Pilate. So as we said here, then in verse 11, Matthew picks it up there in this scene, with Pilate' questioning him, if in fact, these charges about his claim to be a king are true. Are they true? Is he really one who is establishing himself as authority independent from Rome? Now, again, in Matthew, verse 11, he simply records for us that Jesus acknowledged it, acknowledged it. He acknowledged that it was true. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, as you say, as you say, it is as you say. Yes, in fact, I am the king of the Jews. But John, again, fills out some of the details here and records for us a subsequent conversation Namely, in which Jesus identified his kingdom and then himself as a king over this kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. In other words, this is a king. He is a king. Yes, he did come for a kingdom, but it's not one that Pilate or Rome needed to fear. It was a spiritual kingdom. Now we just began introducing that last week. Let me just wrap this up quickly and identify six parts of this spiritual kingdom Six parts of the spiritual kingdom that Jesus actually came to establish. And the first is this. The first part that, of the spiritual kingdom is that Jesus is saying essentially that, look, even as he told his disciples before, this kingdom is not entered into by violence. It's not entered or gained by the sword. It's not to be fought for by human means. It is a kingdom of a different realm. It's of a different nature. In fact, it is a kingdom that he told the leader of the Jews, Nicodemus, that you can only enter into through what? The new birth. The new birth. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's only entered into through faith in Christ. Secondly, then, it is a kingdom who has its authority from God. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on human authority, but it is authority that is independent of all of man's governments and, in fact, ...comes from God. Jesus said this, literally just hours before this... ...in his prayer to the Father, he says... ...even as you gave him authority over all flesh... ...that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. He has authority to judge the living and the dead. He has authority over all life. He has authority over his people. All authority is his, but it is not a human authority... A second part of the spiritual kingdom is that it's a kingdom that will overtake and replace all of the other kingdoms. It will. In one sense, Pilate would have a right to fear because ultimately all the kingdoms of the earth, all the kingdoms like Rome, will be destroyed. God will establish his kingdom on earth. He will establish his rule through Christ. But that's not what what he's doing now. It's not what he's doing now. Now he first came... Because this is a kingdom of righteousness. And so he needed to establish righteousness for his people. And so by saying that it's a spiritual kingdom. It acknowledges or doesn't deny the fact. That he will establish his kingdom in the future on the earth. In one stage for a thousand years. As he rules over his called out ones. His elect. In another phase when he destroys the current heavens and earth. And in an eternal phase on a new heaven and a new earth. But now it's a kingdom that he had to purchase with his own blood. A kingdom that he rules as he rules through the Spirit in the hearts of his people. Paul said this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this kingdom that he came to establish, this kingdom over which he is in fact king, is first a kingdom that he had to establish and purchase Through his own blood. And that's the point here. He is not a kingdom that he was going to establish through the sword. But it is a kingdom that he would establish through his death. Through his death. By dying for his people. Because before anything else, his people had to be made righteous. Righteousness is the hallmark of this kingdom And this righteousness was only going to come through their king, through their Messiah. And this righteousness could only be given through his atoning death and later his sending of the Holy Spirit, who would give faith to his people. And so it is for this reason that he wasn't fighting. And Matthew tells us, by way of reminder, look at verse 12, that while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And in verse 14, he did not answer him, Pilate, with regard to even a single charge or word. So the government, so the governor was amazed. Again, he didn't come to fight. He didn't come to overtake it with the sword. He came to lay down his life. He was utterly submitted to the will of the father, utterly submitted to the will of the father. It was the father who was doing this. It was the father who ordained this. It was the Father who was guiding and directing all of this. Well, again, John records, or Luke records for us, not here in Matthew, but in between, before we get to verse 15, that upon these charges that the Jews had laid against him, they said he was stirring up trouble. We read it earlier. And that he was doing so through his ministry throughout the land of Galilee. Well, this was something that Pilate was. Excited to hear in the moment because that would have placed him then outside of his jurisdiction and within the jurisdiction of Herod. Herod, another ruler, Herod. And so Matthew, Luke 23 tells us this, that when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent word. He sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. So he goes to Herod. And Herod was very glad, Luke tells us, when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. In other words, he just had the same interest as many of the crowds. It was like a sideshow. And he questioned him, Herod did, at some length, but but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before they had been enemies with each other. And so Pilate, thinking that he's somehow going to get out of this again. Sends him to Herod. Herod examines him. Jesus offers him nothing because Herod, he knew who Herod was. He had no defense that he wanted to make before Herod. And he was utterly submitted to what was going to happen. So he simply remains silent. Herod thinks he's going to have some fun. So he dresses him up in a purple robe, beats him, and then sends him back to Pilate. Sends him back to Pilate. And now, here in Matthew, in verse 15, he's back before Pilate. And this is is difficult for him because now Pilate is in a situation where he has to make a decision. He has to make a decision. And granted, he is in a very difficult position. A very difficult position. In one sense, he has Jesus before him whom he knows is innocent of the crimes he's being charged of. In another sense, he knows that these Jewish leaders are absolutely determined to have him put to death. He also knows that this charge of sedition is a very serious one to Rome and that he himself could be culpable before the emperor and before Caesar if he were to let this charge go unpunished. So he's in a very difficult position. But the overarching and compelling reality that is weighing on Pilate and what makes him, in fact, guilty is that he knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus was innocent. And if he were to do anything to violate that knowledge of his innocence, then he himself is guilty of injustice. So he's feeling that. He's feeling that. Now let's look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor had been accustomed to release one of the prisoners to the crowd whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So now we're confronted with this even more stunning situation. This is a custom that is not well attested to in history. It is possibly referred to in the Mishnah, if you remember, written much later that was written down a lot of the Jewish codes and and laws. But it was not a common Roman practice. However, the rulers of provinces, uh, provinces in Rome had significant authority and leeway really to govern in whatever way that they saw best. And so they had a significant amount of authority to put to death or to release from death. As a matter of fact, in Roman law, there was a provision for two types of amnesty. One was called oblito, which was an acquittal before trial. And one was called indulgentia, which was an acquittal after a conviction. Jim can correct me on my pronunciation later. But the point is is that there were two times. Pilate had the authority as a Roman official to let Jesus go. But Pilate also had the authority then to create this own kind of custom, which is probably what's going on here. And so for him, it wasn't a matter of justice. It wasn't even a matter of mercy. It wasn't even a matter of leniency. To him, it was a matter of expediency. He knew that in this custom, it offered him yet another... Vague kind of opportunity to relieve himself of having to make this decision. In a way to appease the Jews while relieving himself from any guilt or responsibility for condemning Jesus. In either case, this custom of Pilate is acknowledged in this scene. really and ultimately to emphasize at another level still. The treachery and the willful rejection of Christ by the leaders and the people. And to show beyond a shadow of a doubt the the measure of guilt that they bear. And the depth of the sin that's being displayed here. Look at what he says next. He says this in verse 16. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is an interesting character. His name literally means most likely son of a father, which means it's it's possible. This isn't for sure that Barabbas was the son of a rabbi scholar, that he was actually a son of a of one who would have been esteemed in the Jewish culture. Now, John 1840 identifies him as a robber or a thief. And again it's possible it's not for sure but it's very possible even likely that Barabbas himself is the leader of the two other robbers or thieves that were crucified next to Christ that they were a part of his gang as it were but Barabbas is the leader is now being called out up front. Mark 15:7 says that he had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. And so here he is, this despicable character that's being held up next to Christ. Again, Matthew only calls him notorious. And this is interesting because the term used by Matthew actually could be used for good or bad. It's translated notorious as bad because it's being viewed in this sense through the eyes of the Roman government. However, in the eyes of the Jews, he may have been somewhat of a hero. They were always... Thankful, they were always supportive either secretly or openly of those who would oppose Roman authority and rule. They hated the fact that Rome was over them. And so Barabbas was was, was an insurrectionist. He opposed them. So in the mind of the Jews, he may have been somewhat of a hero, someone to be acclaimed. But in the mind of the Rome, he was notorious. He was a criminal. However, he's viewed on whichever side, what is clear is this. He was a man convicted of murder. He was a man convicted as a thief. And he was a man convicted as a rebellion against government and authority. As a matter of fact, Calvin suggests that Pilate chose Barabbas because his crimes were so abominable that next to Christ, the people may have pity on Jesus and let him go. They'd say, this guy is bad. We should let Jesus go, who's claimed to be the king of the Jews. Whatever Pilate's exact motive, God's purpose again was to provide a stark and compelling Contrast. You know, there is one other interesting fact here, part, is that in some manuscripts, the name for before Barabbas is actually Jesus. So if you look in the Greek text, it's in brackets, which means it may or it may not be a part of the original. Uh, it's re- found in some older manuscripts, it's actually found in some of the early fathers. If in fact it is original, which is possible, then it makes an even more striking picture. In other words, it would be, who do you want me to let go for you? Jesus Barabbas, who offers you deliverance through the sword? Or Jesus Christ, who offers you deliverance through his death? So a choice is presented to the leaders and to the crowd and to even Pilate. What are you going to do with Jesus? And so he says in verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, what Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Who do you want me to release to you? Now, this is an ongoing conversation that he's going to have with these leaders. It's going to be a back and forth and a back and forth. Here, he's simply presenting to them the option or the possibility of letting Barabbas go, but they'll have... Nothing to do with it. And throughout this interchange, as we'll notice later, Pilate is constantly trying to get them to let Jesus go because he knows that he is innocent. And so actually, Matthew does something interesting here. Before getting to the decision of the crowds, before getting into this whole interchange where they'll make their choice and cry out for his blood, Matthew is very careful here to establish by an overwhelming testimony the innocence of Christ. The innocence of Christ. Look at verse 18. Immediately following the question, he notes, For he knew, this is Pilate, that because of envy they had handed him over. Pilate knew, again, that they weren't seeking justice but protection for their power. He knew of the huge popularity of Jesus who was welcomed into Jerusalem among shouts of the people. He knew all that. He knew what these leaders were really like. He knew they were opportunists. Remember, we established there was a great hostility between Pilate and the people throughout his reign. He knew them. He had no love for them. He knew their character. He knew how pretentious and proud and self-centered they were. He knew how popular Jesus was. And so he knew that their motives were absolutely unjust in bringing up Jesus before them. Even more than that, look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So he, he knew the charges were false. He knew that the motives of these leaders were wicked and now he even has the testimony of his wife that's telling him that this is an innocent man. Let him go. This is astounding. This is astounding. And not really unlikely. Dreams were not uncommon particularly in the Old Testament and even in pagan religions. Of course, they could be true or they could be false. In this case, it is a dream that was clearly given by God and made an impression upon his wife, so much so that she would sin to interrupt her husband in the middle of such an intense scene while he's acting in his official capacity as a judge. As a judge. This is a testimony repeatedly, 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 repeatedly to the innocence of Christ. To the innocence of Christ. Now God isn't trying to move Pilate to let him go. That's not the reason for giving her the dream. Right? It's been determined that he would die. That's why he sweat drops of blood in the garden. Because of knowing what the end of that death would be. The displeasure of his father as he bore the weight of the sin of the world. There was The idea of escape is not the point of God doing that. It is himself to increase the guilt of Pilate And of the crowds. And bear testimony again to the innocence of Christ. Christ is absolutely innocent. And he's making that point over and over and over and over again for our eyes. Again, Calvin said this. God the Father took many methods of attesting the innocence of Christ... ...that it might evidently appear that he suffered death in the room of others. That is our room. God compelled him, Pilate... To defend the innocence of his own son, not to reduce him from death, but only to make it manifest that in the room of others, he endured that punishment, which he had not deserved. I mean, the testimony throughout is this is the innocent son of God. This is a wicked act of injustice of men. This is the ultimate end of sin once. And yet, while they're sinning, God is bearing testimony to the perfection of his son. This is my innocent son. This is my spotless son. This is the one in whom there is no sin. So Pilate continually tries to let him go. We won't read it in Luke 23. He makes another appeal and an argument against or to the leaders to say, let him go, let him go. I find no guilt in him. Herod finds no guilt in him. You should let him go. But of course, they refused to do that again. And Pilate is too much of a coward and too much of a political opportunist to do anything about that. And so he's completely complicit within justice. And really, even more, Pilate is a picture of this. He's a picture of the one who's unwilling to count the cost to following Christ. Think about this. Pilate had more information than the thief on the cross had. He had enough information to believe He had enough information to have faith in Christ. He had enough information to count it all to receive Christ as king. The thief on the cross did. Pilate had more information than he he did because he had private conversations with Jesus. And so really, he was unwilling to do that. He was unwilling to do that. It's exactly the same thing that Matthew warned about in the parable of the soils that says, hey, somebody's willing to receive it with joy for a while. But he says this. One who has no firm rooting himself is temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away. Here, it's not one who made any profession of faith to begin with, but he sees the persecution, he sees the affliction, he sees the cost that would come not only by not believing in Christ, but just by being a just ruler in the land. And he's unwilling to do it. And so they refuse to let him go. And Matthew Verse 20, 27, 20 says this the chief priest persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So blinded by their hatred, so blinded by the lies of the Jewish leaders, their own unbelief, they are absolutely determined to follow this to its end and to its final course. And so Jesus says, or, or Pilate says, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And their answer is predictable Barabbas. Barabbas, give to us the murderer, give to us the insurrectionist, give to us the thief and crucify Christ. Crucify him. So Pilate tried again to let him go. And and they just yell out even more. Well, Pilate says, what evil has he done? And they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate at this point has lost all control of the situation. And imagine where he's wrestling with. He's fearful and he's conflicted in his own heart. He's conflicted in part by his self-interest or really totally by his self-interest and the reality that Christ is an innocent man. So he's either going to condemn himself and put himself in danger or he's going to condemn an innocent man. And this is raging inside of his heart. And he has no inclination towards enacting on justice. No inclination to believe on Christ. And really, in fact, he'd already made his decision. But he's still trying to get out of it. And so while they're getting louder, he's getting more fearful. Now, it was common for Jewish people to coerce government officials by loud and raucous behavior. That that in and of itself wasn't so uncommon. But this is far more than that. This shows a level of hatred and hostility and intensifying anger toward Jesus, which is really hard to imagine. But Pilate didn't give up. It says in chapter 19 of verse of John, just listen, that after this exchange, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Counting what he endured by the religious leaders earlier before the Sanhedrin, this is now the second time that he's been beaten, and the third time that he's been humiliated and mocked, the second being before Herod. Now, Pilate did this probably to arouse some kind of sympathy in the people. This would not have been what's going to come later, and yet another beating, a third beating, which is going to be the more severe. We'll talk about that later. This was a lesser beating, but one meant to show him as weakened, bruised, and humiliated before the people. And remember that at this point, Jesus has been awake for about two days. He's had no sleep. When he first was dragged out in the night before the Sanhedrin. And then in the next morning started these whole other proceedings. He's had no sleep. He's been beaten on several occasions. He's been mocked. He's been jerked from one location to another. He's a pathetic appearance. And now not only beaten, bleeding, swollen. He has this robe around him meant only to shame him and to mock him and to humiliate him. And Pilate presents then this man before the people to arouse some sympathy, but he got anything but. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 5 of John 19 that Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to the people, Behold the man. Behold the man. And really, Pilate is saying here both more and less than he knows. What he doesn't know is that, in fact, this man is the eternal son of God who stands before them. But he is the eternal son in full display of his humanity. Christ, the eternal son, took on the full experience of humanity. We read it earlier. He became flesh for the very purpose of experiencing this suffering and this ridicule by his people. That's why he took on flesh. That was the point. Just so he could experience this shame. On our behalf. In the eyes of the unbelieving Pilate, in the eyes of the unbelieving crowd, this certainly was not the powerful Messiah that they expected who would establish his kingdom and destroy all others. Who would be the stone that came out of heaven and destroyed the feet of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. That's the kind of Messiah that they were waiting for. That's the kind of kingdom they were waiting for. How in the world could that be being accomplished by this man who is totally pathetic before their eyes and be ...being abused by these leaders... ...and by Pilate. And yet... ...while to them... ...because they're looking through the eyes of unbelief... ...he was weak... ...he was a pathetic sight... ...absolutely... ...beaten... ...down as a man... ...and yet... ...in the eyes of God and reality... ...let me suggest to you... ...in his weakness, in his bleeding... ...in his, in his standing there... That is the greatest display of human strength possible. It's in its fullest measure, as we mentioned, the meekness of Christ, who laid down his life willingly for his people. Though he is Lord of all, he's laying himself down to be counted a common criminal. And in his humanity, he feels this suffering to its fullness. He feels it to its fullness, And imagine how he looked to unbelieving eyes. And of course, then the question is how does he look to your eyes? How does he look to your eyes? How do you see him? Do you merely have a human kind of sympathy over one treated so wrongly? Just kind of that natural sympathy that can kind of come and then go, like watching a movie that you cry at and then you're done as soon as you start eating popcorn or finish the next thing? Is it that kind of sympathy? Or do you see this one here as the eternal son of God laying down his life for your sins? Not as a concept, but your sins. Your sins that make you guilty. Your sins that are a condemnation to you. Is he that man? Is he that man? He wasn't, of course, to these people here, but you have to ask yourself that own question, particularly as we come to the Lord's table. Well, Pilate brings Jesus out again and so he says, what do you want me to do with him? And they again in this mob mentality of intense hatred and rejection of Christ simply cry out again that they want Barabbas. They don't want Christ. And they say again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's almost like a mantra, a chant that they're just saying. It is mass crowds together, crucifying, crucifying him. They want nothing to do with his kind of kingship. We want nothing to do with his kind of kingdom. We want nothing to do with his claims to be our Messiah. Kill him. And this is a rejection with the full knowledge of his claims. A Rejection of a testimony to the person of Christ from Scripture, from the Spirit, from his miracles, from his words, from John the Baptist, from the Father, from his own life. They were aware of these things and they rejected it. As a matter of fact, they'll later then say to Pilate, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. They knew what he was claiming. So this wasn't out of ignorance. This was out of full knowledge of who he was. And this exposes at least one argument of the leaders to persuade the crowds. It went something like this. This man claims to be the Messiah... This man claims to be the son of God. Yet look at him. Look at him. Would a Messiah be shamed and weak like this? No. He is an imposter. In fact, worse, he is a blasphemer because he's claimed himself to be equal to God. You must reject him. He deserves death. For God's glory, he deserves death. For the sake of the law, he deserves death. He deserves to die. And so they believed him. They fully went on with that and they cry out for his blood. Again, that's the same kind of argument that's going to be used when he's on the cross. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. How in the world would a king and a god let that happen? He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't believe even if one rises from the dead, right? Even if one rises from the dead. That's the darkness of sin. They wouldn't believe. They're not going to believe by more signs. They had made up their heart. This is the darkened heart. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, he's foolishness. Foolishness. Now, interestingly, in this interchange, Pilate is the most affected by this statement. And John 19 tells us again that when Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Again, Jesus gave him no answer. No answer. He wasn't interested in defending himself. The only thing Jesus was interested in is speaking the truth. And inasmuch as he bore testimony to his person and to the glory of the Father and to his kingdom, he was done. He was absolutely submitted to the will of the Father. He had no interest in trying to save himself. In any case, Pilate made several more attempts to let him go, all all pointless. Let's look lastly then at verse 24 through 26. And we'll wrap this up as we come into the Lord's table. And this last section here, then we just say it's the glory of God's grace and the guilt of man and the guilt of man. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. See to that yourself. Now, Pilate does this, of course, to salve his conscience. To somehow convince himself that he doesn't have to take part in the blame and the guilt of him being an innocent man being crucified. That he can absolve himself in some sense of that. And so he washes his hand, particularly a Jewish custom. It wasn't unheard of outside of there. The point is, is he's trying before this Jewish crowd to show that he is removing himself from any blame. Again, Pilate is fully aware of Jesus as innocent, and he is morally responsible before God to release him. He's morally responsible to do that. Regardless of the personal consequences, Pilate had the human authority, but he instead chose to give in to the wicked and the unjust desires of the crowd. As a matter of fact, Mark 15:15 15, 15 says that he was wishing to satisfy the multitude. That was his motivation. But he was guilty. Absolutely guilty. As a matter of fact, James 14, 4.17 says this, To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it is what? Sin. It's sin. Doesn't matter how many rituals he goes through. Doesn't matter how many things you might do in committing sin to somehow make up for it. He's guilty. He's absolutely guilty. He knew what he should do and he did not do it. He should have executed justice and he did not. He was unwilling to pay the price of integrity. Of integrity. Of acknowledging his own guilt. And he was ultimately unwilling to pay the price of faith. One writer said this, Pilate was a man who felt the power of Jesus and was afraid to submit to it. How many are there like that? How many are there like that in this room? Who understand the cost understand the rightness of who Jesus is, but just unwilling to pay the cost. There are still those who are afraid to be Christians, the writer says, as they know they ought to be. He later says, Pilate was warned by his sense of justice. He was warned by his conscience. He was warned by the dream, warned by the dream of his troubled wife. But Pilate could not stand against the mob. And Pilate made the futile gesture of washing his hands. But He's guilty. He's guilty. Pilate is absolutely guilty, and the crowds are absolutely guilty. Look at verse 25. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. In other words, simplified, that we take full guilt and responsibility for this action. We own it, is a way of them saying, We own it. It's ours. And not just us. Look at what they say, and on our children. Absolutely, this is just blind foolishness at this point. This is unthinking, unthinking. But it is a full admission also of their guilt, a full admission of their guilt. I should say here as a note that this verse has been used throughout history, verse 25, to justify untold atrocities against the Jewish nation and the people. But it's not just the Jews here who are shown in their guilt. They're representative of man's rejection of Christ. These had a particular guilt that they bear before God, but they represent the rejection of Christ by all. By all. Guess what? If you and I would have been there, apart from the grace of God, we would have done the same. We would have done the same. So the crowd is guilty. They previously accepted him as at least a prophet. And even if all of these people aren't the same crowds who welcomed him into Jerusalem, those may have been more Galilean pilgrims really coming into Jerusalem. But either way, very likely many of them were. In either case, these are those who were in Jerusalem that week who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching, who were willing to accept him at least at some degree as a prophet and very likely willing to go at some level along with the idea that he may be the Messiah... They, were, they, were, they had some knowledge here that would have, should have moved them. Why are they so easily, though, persuaded by the leaders? Why are they doing this? Why are they so willing to turn in such the opposite direction? Well, one reason is because he didn't turn out to be the kind of Messiah they expected or wanted. That was continually the problem with the people. And, of course, that's a continually a problem throughout. Again, if we leave that with them, we miss the point. How many people go to church and they love a Jesus who's always accepting of who they are and where they are in life, a Jesus who's non judgmental, a Jesus who doesn't make any kind of demands but's always there to encourage them and help them when life gets rough and they're feeling down? They love that kind of Jesus, but the kind of Jesus that is Lord of all, the kind of Jesus that was crucified on a cross to atone for sin, the kind of Jesus that makes demands on our life. Yes, out of love and wisdom, but he makes demands on our life. He is the Lord of all. Well, as soon as that Jesus is presented, they don't want him anymore. They lose interest. He's not just out to be their buddy, but their Lord. And that's not the kind of thing they signed on for. But there's a deeper reason. There's a deeper reason that people reject. And it's this. A deeper reason that they all did this, who are a part of this, and it's this. It's not difficult. They're unregenerate. They're unbelieving. Their hearts are darkened by sin. That's the condition of man outside of God changing it. And so if your heart is darkened by sin and you're unbelieving, guess what? You are liable to be susceptible. And matter of fact, you will be to false teaching through its influence. Why? There's no testimony of the spirit of truth within your heart to move you in another direction. And so there they are. First, John says this for six. They're from the world and therefore the world listens to them. The world listens to them. That spirit of error, the spirit of the Antichrist. But those who are from God do what? Listen to us. God's messengers, God's apostles. They listen to the word. Jesus had already told Pilate, those who are mine, what? They hear my voice. If you're not of my kingdom, you don't hear my voice. And so when they look at Christ, when an unbeliever looks at Christ, what do they see? They see a man. They see a man. They see a man weak. They see a man destroyed. They may see a man who's somehow righteous in some sense of however they define that. But what they don't see is the son of God in flesh being crucified for them. Listen to Paul's words. We speak a wisdom We do speak a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Listen, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't see any glory. There was no glorious God. There was no glorious Christ. There was no glorious Savior. When unbelief looks at Christ, they don't see any of those things. They simply don't. The very evidence of saving faith is where all of a sudden that person of Christ becomes glorious. He becomes wonderful. All of a sudden he becomes everything that your heart desires and the lusters of the world grow strangely dim and the glory of God in Christ becomes precious to you and you want to hold on to him and you're willing to give up everything to follow him. That's what faith is. It sees yourself in the light of who God is and sees his provision in Christ and says, yes. That's what I want. But if you don't see any glory, let me tell you, everything else is going to be more beautiful. is going to be more wonderful. And you'll follow it. So they didn't see his glory. That was the problem. Let me end with this as we come into the table. In the midst of all of this darkness and the sin of man, yet the grace of God is still shining, not only of the glory of Christ then, but even as Christ is suffering, even as these words of the crowds are ringing in his ears, even as he hears them and feels the rejection of his own people and of these leaders, he also knows many of those he was going to redeem by the very death that he was suffering. He knew that. He knew that that was going to go out. Listen, To the message, this man, Peter proclaimed, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He tells many of those who were there, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Let all the house of Israel know for certain, Peter proclaimed, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. They call their guilt on themselves, to themselves and to their children. And the grace of God says, but by believing in what he did, you will in fact receive the promise, you and your children. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God. He told them later, speaking to the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses, and on the basis of faith in his name and the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, this is after a healing, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect help. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the, all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you. They cried out for His blood, but when He rises, Christ, or God through Christ and His apostles cries out for their salvation. To believe, to believe this was done for you, he told them, This was done for you. You're guilty. But God extends forgiveness. Extends forgiveness. So he died according to the Father's plan. Pilate then, back in our scene, gave him over to be crucified. We, however, who are gathered here this morning, I trust, have put our faith in Christ. We have seen not just a man, but the Son of God given up for us. And that's what we celebrate in the table. His blood spilled for us. His body given for us. His life lived for us. His death for us. His resurrection for us. His kingdom gained for us. And that's what we anticipate and remember together. If you are not a part of this kingdom, if you don't know the spiritual realities of this kingdom, search your heart. Consider Christ. And I pray that you would believe today. Let me pray. Our men will come forward then and pass out the elements. And then we'll take the table together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. How amazing that you so loved this world. This world that is darkened in sin. This world that rejected you. And yet you showed such mercy. You show such grace. Help us to live in the light of these realities. Every other thing, every other reality pales in light of this one truth that you Forgive sinners in your Son and reconcile them to yourself. May that be our truest delight for indeed you are the great gain of the gospel. Thank you for your grace. Attend now our remembrance of your table by your grace and the Spirit with hearts of worship. Amen.